This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're talking with Karen Begament from Work Matters Consulting. The website is workmattersconsulting.com. Karen's a career consultant and principal at Work Matters Consulting. She has over 10 years' experience in the career development field. She works directly with folks as well as groups of folks, supporting and motivating them to find the work they love. Uh, it's so great that you're doing this kind of work to, to help folks figure out um, what their next step is or to re-enter the workforce. Uh, it's, just, uh, it's just a really, really good thing and such a needed, uh, a needed effort at this time. Thank you. Yes, I, I love the work I do, and I find it uh, very rewarding. I bet you do. One yeah. of the things, too, uh, along with that, say, the idea that we, we read about uh, huge changes in our workforce, uh, and, and there's a couple of different uh, facets of it, but let's talk about the difference between an older job seeker and a younger job seeker. You must see some pretty significant differences between the two groups. Yes, absolutely. So to address your question around, uh, let's start with the older job seeker. I've done a lot of work, actually, with that age group. And, uh, you know, they are divided into, of course, people who have been in one industry for a very long period of time and then may be laid off and don't see themselves as having a lot of transferable skills. There are other older workers who, or mature workers, as I like to call them, who have been in an industry but are finding they're getting stagnant and they want to, you know, move up to, you know, uh, something more challenging. Or the opposite, they're reaching an age or a stage in their lives where they want to ramp down a bit and they're looking at maybe part-time work. So that group does have very different needs and, of course, a different approach in working with them for sure. Uh, they come often with a lot of skills and can be perceived in the market as being overskilled or, you know, overqualified for, you know, positions and too expensive. Um, they're, the employers are concerned they're going to demand too high a salary. Then, of course, we have ageism and all of the perceptions that go along with that, that, um, you know, even though... A lot of employers are equal opportunity. We like to think that we're very liberal-minded and in hiring people of all ages and so forth. Uh, people do feel that as a, a challenge, a very real challenge. So a lot of what I do with people in that position as far as presenting themselves to employers is to really encourage them to be very um, positive and proactive in making sure that they keep their technology skills up to date, that they're doing research to find out more about companies that do hire people who are, um, you know, mature workers. Um, I always think, you know, right off the top of my head, um, you know, Van City, uh, Home Depot is well known as an employer who does uh, hire older workers. 
Well, it's so interesting, too, in this day and time, because uh, sometimes uh, hiring somebody who's got uh, a few more transferable skills than a brand new job seeker is a better bet. Uh, because, you know, they get the value of having a job and being mm-hmm. there. They're a bit more loyal, a bit more committed uh, yeah. than sometimes the, you know, the stereotypical younger worker. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would tend to agree that, uh, you know, there is for employers the, the perception that they might get uh, somebody who is going to be likely to stay longer in a position if they're, you know, they've raised their family, they've paid their mortgage, uh, you know, they're not necessarily going to, you know, get that call that they need to go home and pick up their their child um, uh, from school. Uh, they're, you know, I think that sometimes in, uh, people who are the job seekers themselves need to sometimes remind employers that they, you know, that they're very uh, available time-wise and that they see themselves as being able to stay, um, you know, with that company for a reasonable period of time and will offer that loyalty. I think culturally and also in terms of um, people who are at a, you know, uh, who are mature workers, they, the whole idea of company loyalty is getting more and more outdated because of the way our, you know, our workforce is changing so much and, and, you know, there is a lot more movement going on with the younger group. Uh, when they want to advance, they often will shift companies rather than, you know, try to find opportunities within a company they're in, or they just may not see what they're looking for. So, you know, I think both groups have their strengths and their challenges for sure. And, and Karen, just for my client base that I see come into the door, it's at Sands and Associates, you know, absolutely, and many of, of folks um, of the older demographic, they're feeling the age um, discrimination, you know, ageism and different things like that. And sometimes part of my job as a trustee is to be a bit of a cheerleader and, you know, to let them know, you know, it might take a little bit of a time here, but you've got skills, you are going to find something. Um, I'm wondering from your perspective, how do you help somebody keep positive, um, you know, avoid the, the negative thoughts, the negative cycles that can sometimes get you down if there's a lengthy job? job search? Right. That's a great question. And uh, it is very much a roller coaster emotionally for most people. And uh, I would say, you know, a few of the tips that I would offer is really staying connected with other people. And that means networking, uh, talking to people who are working in an area that is of interest to you if you're wanting to transition to something else, uh, you know, staying in contact with previous coworkers. Uh, finding out, you know, who could I talk to? What are some, you know, good companies out there uh, that you know of that would be good to apply to? And generally, you know, do your research as to where you would like to move forward. Uh, what are companies that uh, are offering, you know, good compensation packages, a positive work culture, positive, you know, possibilities for growth, if that's something they're looking for, uh, depending on where they are in their career. But, uh you know, I think people, uh, if people are proactive in their job search by networking and connecting, it gives them something to do. It's a focus, and they're not just sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring or for them to get the email um, offering them an interview. Uh, one of the things that I've seen so much is people will use one strategy for their job search, and that's applying to postings, and they're not getting out enough. They're not 
engaging with people. And I mean that also on a social level, is that people can really isolate themselves socially when they're in job search because of that shame factor. They don't want to go to parties. They don't want to talk. To, they don't want to right. face that question again of, oh, so have you found a job yet? Uh, it's it's tough uh, on you people. You can only say I'm between jobs for so long before it gets, you know, yeah, a conversation a you don't want to have, yeah. Yeah, the other thing in terms of um, connecting with other people that I always suggest to people is be selective about who you spend time with because mm. you want to be around those people who are encouraging to you, not the ones that are going to, you know, put you down or or even insinuate in some ways that there's something wrong with you because you're not working. Um, so I, I always suggest, you know, doing that as well as um, going to social events where, you know, you've got that general camaraderie and, and you know, ability to just have fun. I think that's something people forget to do as well when they're in job search is that they feel like they should be doing their job search 24-7, which is not realistic. They need to have some downtime when they're not actually actively job searching, doing things they love, you know, going for walks or yoga or playing music, whatever it is, um, can be hugely beneficial emotionally. Karen, can we talk a little bit about the idea of transferable skills uh, and the process that you put people through when they come to see you? I think it's one of those really undervalued uh, pieces when somebody's lost their job. I've come across so many folks, for example, in the broadcasting business who go, oh, but the only thing I can do is talk on the radio. And Mm -hmm. given the opportunity, when you sit down and you look at all the skills involved in being able to do that, I mean, it's an enormous enormous list. And often I find the longer you do something, the more likely you are to sort of forget about all the skills that it takes in order to do that. Absolutely. And uh, I think just to, to add to what you've just said is that when people are out of work, when they lose a job, it's as if they feel like they've just lost all their skills along with their job. Absolutely. They have nothing, right? They yeah. really have that perception. So when I'm working with folks, I I do uh, a transferable skills uh, analysis or assessment in a variety of ways. Uh, One of my preferred ways is um, a stories exercise, and uh, it involves having the person recount basically three stories uh, where they felt a certain amount of satisfaction uh, from work-related or work they've done in the community, wherever, you know, an experience where they used a fair number of their skills and their time and where they lost track of, of time, essentially. And they were really, like we like, we like to say, in the, in, the, in the zone or in kind of a flow state where they're just so involved in what they're doing. Um, you know, they clearly love it and they've got clearly some skills, uh, you know, that are making it possible for them to do it so well. So I get people to tell those pride stories. And it's, I often do this in my first session with people. And it's such a, it's great just to see how their eyes light up and, you know, the pride comes through in their voice when they're talking about these experiences. And then I brainstorm, okay, what are all the skills you used in that, um, in that experience? You know, they might have been organizing a fundraiser or they were organizing an event at maybe their child's school or whatever it was. And then we just mine for skills and we write them all down and, you know, go to the next story, the same thing. And by the time we're finished, we have a long list of skills, and they're actually anchored to an actual, to actual experiences, which is in, in turn preparing them for 
writing a good resume, as well as for answering interview questions. So that's my favorite. Not everyone's a storyteller. So for those people, I have quite an extensive spreadsheet checklist of what I call motivated skills. It's actually kind of taken from um, a really good um, skill sort. The idea um, of that is is, um, a card sort that is available um, commercially. But it, it's helping people to identify what are the skills, you know, I really enjoy using and what am I really good at. And then shortlist that to, I, I have them come up with 16 transferable skills that, you know, tick all the boxes of I'm really competent and comfortable doing this skill and I really enjoy it. And we use those, that list of skills, uh, to help them identify other occupations where those primary skills will be used. Uh, in fulfilling the role. Karen, I'm uh, just going to interrupt at this point. We're, sure. we're running right out of time. Oh, I dear. want to okay. include uh, that you do a lot of work with women, uh, new moms, uh, women who have been off on maternity leave. You've got yes. interactive workshops as well that you offer at the uh, the company. It's called Work Matters Consulting. Their website, yes. if you want to get a hold of Karen, very easy to do, uh, workmattersconsulting.com. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or you can call 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you and make an appointment for a free consultation. On the line with us right now is Terrence, and uh, Terrence is a former client of Sands & Associates, uh, and uh, you said a a lovely thing before we started, Terrence, about... uh, um, just appreciating the work that Sands and Associates did for you. Yeah, I certainly do appreciate them a lot, Elaine. It's lovely. Go ahead, Blair. Great. Well, th- thank you, Terrence. Thank you for joining us and for having um, you know the, the courage to, to come forward and, and to tell your story because I know there are so many people who are struggling, who are facing similar situations to what you faced. You faced it head on and, and came out the uh, the other side better off for it. Um, and I've always been impressed, Terrence, that you, you're happy to share that experience. So I wonder if we could start. Can you just give us a little bit of background about the situation? You know, what was your life like before you, you reached out for help to us? How did you know that you, you needed the help of Sands and Associates? Well, you know, Blair, it, it was I was just like the average person, working my way through life and paying my bills and everything was going along smooth. And then, by chance, I won a considerable amount of money. Hmm. I, I tried some investments, and not being what one would call a good money handler, I made some pretty bad mistakes. I, I allowed myself to falsely think that somehow things would just work out. Right. And somehow all would be well. And that was just wishful thinking, Blair, on my part. I really needed some advice and some help. And so that's why I reached out. Uh, I made the mistake of trying to recuperate my losses, and that led me to living off credit cards and putting off paying some current debts. One day, I had the shock of my life and a real m- stopping moment. I saw for the first time the small print on one of my mm-hmm. credit cards statements that read, 
if you make only the required minimum payment, it'll take you 26 years to pay off this card. (laughs) (laughs) Larry, you can imagine the shock I got. And Terrence, I I don't mean to to date you, but do you mind giving a sense of of your age at this point? Hopefully there's 26 years there. Well, that, yeah, well, I was actually 70, 76 years old. Right. So I thought, well, wait a minute, I may or may not get this paid off before I leave, so I better look into something. Right. And and the amount was not in the hundreds of thousands of dollars either. That's what really shocked me. And I thought the amount was manageable, uh, except it would take so long to pay it off. Then along came a a light in a TV show about bankruptcy. And the person being interviewed was a money manager, a multimillionaire, who had made some poor choices and wanted to let folks know that there was no shame um, in these poor choices and no embarrassment in filing bankruptcy. And, Blair, that's when I sat up. And this person had said, you know, mistakes happen with a lot of folks, and some poor times poor choices are made. Well, I dropped my shame, I dropped my embarrassment, I squared my shoulders, and I decided to seek some help. Right. And and that's great, Terrence, And that, you know, the stigma that we have for individuals in debt, you know, for so long, I've been frustrated that we don't think necessarily a corporation is bad because they've had to restructure, you know, Air Canada, who's restructured a number of times, we don't think they're a bad company. But individually, we tend to put a lot of stigma on ourselves that we're a bad person if if we can't always pay our debts back in full. It's true. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, oh, not not at all, Terrence. I wonder if you if you could to kind of bring us along on that journey because I think it's it's very very interesting. Um, so you've reached out to to make the call. What what happened from there? Well, I, I had to seek out some folks that um, had filed bankruptcy, and I I was looking for a company with a good reputation. I, I you know you you get a little nervous about these things. Um, so I finally wound up uh, calling your company, Sands and Associates. What was amazing to me, Blair, was how well I was received. I, I met with a representative uh, who made me feel so warm and friendly. Um, uh, she was a friendly and warm person. It made me feel really welcome. Uh, she put me in a frame of mind of feeling absolutely no embarrassment at filing bankruptcy, regardless of what age. She walked me through the process with care and kindness. And, Blair, the moment I agreed to the terms which, by the way, were very uncomplicated and very simple to understand, I felt a tremendous relief. The 26 years to pay off that one credit card debt vanished the moment I put my signature to paper and agreed to the terms of bankruptcy, as outlined, by the way, Blair, by the government and its legal process, and was handled by experts in the field of financial advice and recuperation, and that was your company. And what what did you think you were walking into, Terrence? I'm curious because I know people are, you know, they really, they beat themselves up and they delay making the call because I think they're worried they're going to come in and feel judged or or things like that. What what were you imagining for that meeting? Because I can that, tell it exceeded your expectations, but what were really those expectations? Did. Yeah, yep, it really did exceed it because I felt exactly what you're saying. We have this cultural thing, you know, the bankruptcy is a no-no and you must be terrible. And it's not, it's, it's not, it's a, it's a, uh, part of life, actually, for a lot of people. But this process really, really surprised me, as I was under the impression that filing bankruptcy would be an invasion of my personal life, and the government would be involved, and that process would just take forever. There, nothing like that happened. Mm-hmm. The process the process was just about as simple as it gets, and with the help of that financial advisor at Sands & Associates, I started to feel good immediately. 
Terrence, um, I'm curious, how has that experience impacted your financial habits today? And how are you, you know, how are you doing after going through uh, the bankruptcy? How are things now? Well, you know, Elaine, really well. This experience of filing the bankruptcy and the solid advice and suggestions from the folks at Sands has made me a better money handler. They, they went through all kinds of uh, processes with me, uh, various simple things to do to make things easier to handle money in the future. Can you talk so, a little bit about what those things were, Terrence? Yep. Or what they you do? Just, they, were, they would have forms that they t- gave me to take home to read, and I would read them, and they would be just suggestions on, or I might call them good ideas, on what to do and how to handle your money uh, making budgets, what to put aside, how much to put aside, how to prepare for the future, and on all of those things. And so what they did, they gave me, I, I think, like a financial freedom. And that's why I have to thank some of the experts uh, from your place over there and from the professional field. And I would say this to anyone in a difficult money situation, if I may, Elaine and Blair, This is what I would say. Don't wait another day. Pick up the telephone, make that call to Sands & Associates, and set the ball rolling to a happy, secure, and future-free of financial torment. I went through it. I know how bad it is, but I also realize now how easy it was and how good it, it, it feels good. And I would say to those folks, let your financial problems of today be your victory of tomorrow. Let Sands and Associates be the springboard that catapults you into a victory of financial happiness and freedom. And forgive me for going on. You know I like to write, so I, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a wordy person. You're pretty eloquent, Terrence, I have to admit. <laughs> well, thank you. I do get a little wordy, but my, my heart knows there's just no limit to the joy I have in my life now because of what Sands & Associates did for me. And I'm not saying that because you are Sands & Associates and I'm on the radio with you. I'm saying that because that's a personal, happy, joyful feeling inside of me that I'm happy to share with anybody that's having a problem. Terrence, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Dollars and Cents uh, with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start, just like Terrence did, by calling 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you. Thank you again, Terrence. You're more than welcome, and it was nice speaking with both of you. We cover a lot of topics here every week on Dollars and Cents, from mistakes not to make when you're in debt to mapping out the mystery behind credit scores and reports and everything in between. We'd love your input as a listener on what financial-related topics are important to you. Tell us what you want to learn more about. Send us an email to radio at sands-trustee.com. That's radio at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. A pretty common question from folks uh, getting into bankruptcy, I'm sure, is what happens then? Right. So once I'm done, once I've figured this all out and, and paid what I need to pay to feel okay about it all, uh, what, what do they do next? Yeah. How, do you, how, do you, how do you sort of start? Yeah, well, there is life after bankruptcy. That, right. That's the whole point. So, I know you yeah. say that. Oh, yeah, and I, and I believe it. And, <laughs> oh. you know, if a company goes into bankruptcy, yeah, usually it's the end, of the end of the story. But individuals, we have this incredible power to, you know, start again and again. So ideally, bankruptcy is a one-time thing in your life, uh, but you will emerge, and generally you'll emerge stronger than you were before. Okay. So let's spend a minute talking about, you know, if you're going through a bankruptcy, what does that actually mean? So you've signed the documents. What do you do next? Yeah. Right? So for the vast majority of people, bankruptcy, is going to be less complicated, less expensive, and take less time than what they think. So most people think bankruptcy is going to take you six or seven years. Absolutely not true. So for the vast majority of people, about 80% of people that come to see us, if you're classified as low income, your bankruptcy is over in nine months. Okay. So less than a year, not six or seven years, nine months. So what happens, you sign the documents with the trustee on day one, um, and then you have a few duties that you have to perform. So instead of you paying your debts, instead of you being accountable to your creditors, having them harass you for payments or different things like that, you make a payment to the trustee each month. And again, if you're low income, that payment is $200 and that's it, regardless of the amount of debt. It could be $10,000 or it could be $110,000. The payment's the same. The important thing every month when you're in bankruptcy is it's meant to be a rehabilitation process. So you have to keep a budget. You have to show us each month what your income was and then tell us where you spent it. So I don't need proof of, you know, groceries or rent or so on and so forth, but I need the individual to make a diligent effort to show that they are tracking their expenses and their income and showing that they're living within their means. So you file for bankruptcy, you keep a budget for nine months, you make a monthly payment. Um, Another really important thing is you come for two counseling sessions. So again, we're really proud at Sands and Associates. We care about the entire person, the entire situation, and quite often, finance is one piece of a puzzle of things that the person is trying to solve. The counseling sessions help by really focusing on rebuilding your credit, giving you the tools you need for household budgeting, but then also understanding are there some non-budgetary reasons of why you're in this situation? Is there some extra support, perhaps an addiction, something that you need some connection to resources? That's what we try to do to, again, make sure it's a one time in your life that you're restructuring things. And over the history of this show, we've talked to some of the folks that work within your company yeah. uh, who who do do that counseling work. So these people are very, very qualified. It's not like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Joe Blow sitting at his desk and saying, oh, well, you really need to stop gambling. You know, that'll yeah. help. Actually, no, there's there's a thoughtful, kind person at the other on the other side of that desk who's going to help you think about it in a different way and then support you in getting more support or more help yeah. uh, with that particular issue that if it becomes apparent that that's what it is. Exactly. Yeah, so the, the counselors, they're at least, you know, multiple years of experience, hundreds of hours experience requirement, professional courses, accreditations, all of that stuff. So they all help you get, get you through the bankruptcy. And the idea is you file for bankruptcy. Nine months later, ideally, you get your discharge. And the discharge means that you're free of the bankruptcy. All the debt gets left behind. Well, what happens then? Let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah, and, and with that, would that, could that include, what do I do about my tax return? Because... At that point, I wouldn't have a clue what to do. Yeah, so in tax... 
what happens with, with taxes in a bankruptcy is any tax debt that you owed before you filed the bankruptcy is going to be dealt with in the bankruptcy. So I have a lot of self-employed individuals, so sometimes realtors or tradespersons or things like that, who just get behind in government remittances and suddenly the revenue dries up and they end up owing the government a lot of money. If you go through a bankruptcy, what happens is we have to file taxes up until the day you file that bankruptcy to make sure any tax debt that you have is going to be included, it's going to be captured, it's not going to follow you in the future. So if you file the bankruptcy on June 30th, I'd be doing a tax return from January 1st until June 30th. It's called a pre-bankruptcy tax return. Okay. And then you file the bankruptcy and the rest of the year happens and goes on. You give me the information and I file the second half of the tax return. So while you're in bankruptcy, you've got basically two tax tax returns for a single year, which sounds a little bit complicated, but the trustee handles all of it. You just give us the information, we split the tax return up, and we deal with any tax set up until the day you filed bankruptcy in order to give you that fresh start. Mm-hmm. If we didn't do that, if we just based it on, you know, December 31st or whatever, well, if you file in June, what about those six months? You yeah. might end up owing some money there. Okay, so after you've looked after yeah. my tax return for that period of time, what you know, how, what's my status within the tax department, especially if I've owed them money? Yeah. So once you're discharged, you are the same as every other Canadian who doesn't owe taxes. So you go back to filing your returns every year. Uh, If you're going to get a refund, you'll get that refund without anything being netted off for past amounts owing to the government. So it gets you back to, you know, being the the perfect taxpayer that CRA always wants to see. So, so we really counsel folks after your discharge, make sure you're filing on time every year, make sure you're not delinquent, make sure any debts you're going to stay on top of just, you know, to try to keep them in that perfect category because CRA, like many places, operates a risk-based approach. And if you're consistently making mistakes on your your tax return or filing late or things like that, you're probably going to trigger them looking deeper or doing audits or things like that. So stay on the straight and narrow as much as you can, but a bankruptcy will get you right back to being, you know, perfect, pristine upon your discharge. Okay. So again, once that's done, uh, I think it's important to sort of note that this is where the counseling can help you. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm really bad at keeping books, proper yeah. books for my little home-based business, or I'm a tradesperson or whatever, um, then I'm going to get some support around that in terms of I need to do this differently. Exactly. So one of the things we do is when we work with self-employed individuals, I had someone in my office last week uh, who was a construction framer, and we sat down, and he's never done his books monthly. So what happens is at the end of the year, he takes a shoebox of receipts to his Uh, accountant. He brings the bank statement and says, here's what I pulled out every month. And, you know, some years he's made money, some years he's lost money. But at the end of the day, there wasn't enough there to pay the taxes, which is why he was in to see me. So when we went through it, I explained to him if he's in bankruptcy, every month, essentially, he's going to pay his taxes. So it's part of the the process of keeping a budget every month is you have to essentially say, here's my revenue, here's my expenses, and you pay the government that month. So he said to me, that means I'm never going to have that horrible call from my accountant in January or February saying I owe the government 20 grand. I said, never, because every month you're not going to spend money you don't have. If it's off to the government, it's gone. You're not going to spend it. Or that awful feeling come whenever we're supposed to start doing our taxes so we meet the deadline. Oh, I've got to go through that shoebox now. Yeah, doing a little bit at a time. It's a great habit. I have a lot of clients, even after they're discharged, they continue to do it every month just because they never want to be in that situation again. And the tax department doesn't look one way or the other any differently at me for doing it that way. No, if anything, they're a little bit happier. You know, you're paying theoretically before you have to, but no, nothing negative at all. But, uh, But at the same time, I'm up to date and yeah. yeah, and if you overpay, well, that, you get a tax refund, then right? Then you get there, money back. What's regardless. wrong with that? Yeah. Exactly. 
Exactly. So any restrictions on owning or acquiring assets? Zero. After your bankruptcy? Yeah. After your discharge, you know, if you were to win the lottery the next day, are you forced to go back and make good on any of those debts? No. You may choose to, and we've had people do that, but no, you're fully legally discharged, and that's why it's so important to get to that point. If you start a bankruptcy and you don't complete it for whatever reason, yeah, if you win the lottery or you start to accumulate assets, those might have to go to pay pay your debts. But if once you get your discharge, you are like every other Canadian around here or non-Canadian, whatever, you're like every other individual who can accumulate assets with no risk of them being taken from them. I like how we say, or or you win the lottery, like that's possible, yeah, <laughs> right? Well, it, in 27 years of practice, we did have it once. Someone fi- filed right? for bankruptcy in the morning, in the afternoon, they won the lottery. Are you kidding yeah. me? Was it a big amount that they won? It was enough to pay off all the debts. And as it's... soon as that happens, they're out of bankruptcy and they got a nice little check back. And wow. you know, obviously, if you knew that was going to happen, you wouldn't have filed. But right. the odds are what, one in 14 million? So yeah. it's, it's not a... Not a good plan, but it does happen. (laughs) It's not a good plan. Not one to bank on, that's for sure. Uh, What about the debts that the bankruptcy didn't cover? Are there debts that the bankruptcy wouldn't cover? There's a short list. And, you know, generally they're the common sense ones that you would think people shouldn't be able to walk away from for the most part. So things like alimony or Mm. things like child support. I don't think there's anyone that would advocate that, you know, those debts should go away if you file for a bankruptcy. Those are your responsibilities. Now, there are a couple others that are a little, you know, a little more gray perhaps. Um, You know, if you owe money for student loans and it's been less than seven years since you were a student and you filed a bankruptcy or a proposal, during the bankruptcy or the proposal, student loans has no greater rights than anyone else. They can't collect from you. They can't hold you accountable for anything. But at the end of the bankruptcy, they have the right to resume collection activities for whatever is not paid. Okay. So I have a lot of individuals I'll sit down with if student loans is one of the first debts they're concerned about. Right. I want them to get in touch with student loans and figure out what's the last study date they have on file. You know, if it's six and a half years from now or six and a half years ago, we would not be doing the right thing to file a bankruptcy or a proposal now. We should wait six months to make sure that that debt would actually get discharged. I see. Now, if it was two years ago and, you know, you've got a bunch of other things, you're being threatened with being, you know, wages taken or assets seized, you may have no other option. You may still need the relief of a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. You just need to realize that after your discharge, income tax is gone, credit cards are gone, lines of credit are gone, but a student loan less than seven years old would not be gone. Oh, that's interesting, hey? Wow. How did they get that little special thing. Yeah, it's a funny when you actually read that section of the law because it says, you know, it's alimony, it's maintenance, it's money owing for things stolen, it's theft, it's dishonesty, and then it's student loans. So wow. so it's it's a real carve out and you know, we don't hold, you know, we don't say that you can't get discharged from income tax even though that's money owing to the government. So yeah. to me, student loans aren't that different. Do I think you should be able to graduate and go bankrupt the next day? No, but 7 years is a long time for a lot of folks. Well, it is, and it's not as if uh the your uh professors or your instructors didn't get pay you know like everybody yeah. got looked at well that's interesting hmm. yeah. that's worth another discussion some oh point. indeed we'll talk more at student loans yeah. <laughs> yeah. darn student loans so another big concern for folks is are am i ever going to be able to get credit again yeah my answer to that is you'll get probably more credit than you reasonably need and the question is going to be or the challenge is going to be using it responsibly mm. so what happens if it's a first time bankruptcy is you can be discharged in as little as nine months and the bankruptcy is going to last on your credit report for six years after your discharge so it doesn't mean you're not you're untouchable completely but it means if someone pulls a credit report 
they're going to see you filed a bankruptcy if it's been six years since your discharge. What we see is if people take the right steps, you know, basic things like starting to get a secured credit card, making sure they pay all their bills on time, including their cell phone bill, which is really important. Yes. If they take all the right steps, usually it's within two or three years, they're now credit worthy again. They're now getting offers of credit cards with more limits than they need if they were going for a mortgage, as long as they've got the down payment, even if a bankruptcy is going to show on the record, as long as it's been two or three years of solid credit rebuilding, they should still be okay. And can you just give me the definition for a secured credit card again, what yeah. that means? Yeah, so that just means a card where you put down a deposit. So if it's a $1,000 card, you might put down a $1,200 deposit, and then the cardholder has no risk, so they will give that to you when you're rebuilding your credit. Got it. Okay, great. For more information on any of the things that we've talked about, check out the website. It's nice and easy, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, for a free consultation to see if any of this information, if you can use this or if it fits your situation or to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Bart Goth from Goth & Company, a debt management expert. He's a licensed insolvency trustee, just like Blair is. Uh, Bart is with Goth & Company, which is a firm of licensed insolvency trustees across Edmonton. So we're talking to him in Edmonton today. He's been working in the insolvency field since 1993, finds it, of course, very rewarding and helping clients recognize they're not alone and giving them lots of options to end debt stress and return to a place where they can enjoy life again. And Bart, that just seems to be one of the nicest things. Uh, If that's your goal on a daily basis to help folks folks find some peace, man, oh man, you've got a good job. It is very rewarding. It's easy to leave at the end of the day and feel like you've done some good. I know that's how Blair feels as well, and uh, I feel a little envious that you guys are <laughs> sort of so such hands-on with folks that when they walk in the door, Bart, they're just at at ends as as to how they're de- how they can deal with their debt, and and uh, you guys are both able to give them so much uh, so much assistance and guidance and and help. It's lovely. Well, we're fortunate to be in a position in a part of a country where we have options that exist. In some parts of the world, they don't have the same type of options available. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, I did note in the as we introduced you uh, that you've been doing this work since 1993. And something I'm always interested in is sort of trends and changes, because I feel like every decade there's a new set of things that we're aware of that we weren't aware of before. Um, how do you find the situations that folks are in today versus uh, 25 years ago? Really, I'd just say they're magnified. Um, I, I was pretty young when I started in this industry, but I, I was always shocked at the the amount of debt that people could get themselves into, um, and that's just become worse and worse. Uh, it, the banks are so willing to, to allow people to qualify as the government's kept interest rates low and, and made it easy to, to afford additional debt. That just has magnified itself over and over year from year. Yeah, I heard somebody describe, you know, the low interest rate environment. It's been like an open bar at a wedding for the last <laughs> 10 years. And, you know, the government's expecting people to exercise moderation, but, you know, definitely not everybody is. No, I had- 
had someone the other day who said, free money. We've been given free money. <laughs> the problem is that free money doesn't last forever, and at some point you have to pay that back, and it's no longer free. Yeah, right. no, that's a really good point. I have I have to uh, shamefully admit I've used that term as well uh, <laughs> when it comes to some things because it feels like it's free when your interest is so, so low. Why wouldn't you borrow this amount or that amount or make this big purchase? Absolutely. Yeah. It's very difficult to have the restraint that probably more of us should. And I know, um, Bart, in, in Vancouver here in the Lower Mainland, the rising real estate prices, they've insulated a lot of people who you know should have gotten into trouble, but then the house kept going up and they just pulled out equity over time. Um, but I know Alberta in the last couple of years with the oil sands, that kind of rising tide has stopped with, with real estate, or at least that's my perception. I'm curious what you're seeing, you know, have, have real estate really leveled off? Has that been a trigger for some people having to deal with their debts? Real estate's leveled off, but there's still been the availability of a lot of credit out there outside of the use of the home. So I don't know if it's necessarily been the the trigger for people coming into my office. I think in in Alberta, we've largely seen the the change in oil prices impact the changes in income. And I think it's those changes in income that have been the driver for the last couple of years. Um, We haven't seen a huge correction on our real estate, at least not in the major centers like Edmonton. Um, But if you look into the smaller areas, predominantly the oil field communities, right, way up north, there's been a dramatic change in those values. So in those communities, it's been a lot more influential. Uh, I think it's just going to be a trickle-down effect. I think people are going to realize that, that this is coming as they start to see that happen. I think there's going to be more and more people in the major centers that are impacted. I know that Alberta has really suffered in all kinds of different ways, too, with the with the oil price and uh, how people are purchasing things and, and traveling and all those kinds of things. Would you say that you... Do you see that kind of... Are the people who are coming in your door, Bart, do they sort of reflect that as well? I wish they reflected that notion of cutting back a Mm. little bit more. They may not be in my door. I think too often people have locked themselves into a lifestyle, and they've elected to finance the quad or finance the snowmobile and do that on top of the truck and the house at, at large payments that originally were okay. But a lot of those types of payments aren't things you can easily adjust if your, mm. if your wages get adjusted. Right, so they got really high fixed costs, and you know, returning the assets can be difficult. I'm not sure if the legislation in Alberta may be different than BC from a seize or sue perspective. Um, but yeah, I could see if, if you've really ratcheted your all your fixed costs up when the income takes a hit, it's really difficult to deal with that situation. Yeah, the, the majority of lending in our province in terms of seizure, seize or sue doesn't directly apply. It does in specific scenarios, but in a lot of scenarios, those items that have been financed, the banks can still come after the shortfall. So that's that's been a challenge for many. I'm wondering, Bart, are there, are there certain, you know, typical cases that you're seeing the, these days? Any, um, you know, specific examples you'd be able to share of folks coming through the door and the type of solutions that they're looking for you to provide? Well, in terms of the people coming through the door, as, as you well know, it's every walk of life, right? right. It's <laughs> someone who worked oil field, it's someone who's oil field services, it's people that are three levels removed, but because the money's not there, it's, it's impacted their ability to, to make a living. And so, I mean, what we see in our office, it really doesn't change that much from day to day. We we see a variety of people. We see uh, a number of, of unsecured and secured debts, and, and they all add up to be far more than what the income is able to handle. Mm-hmm. Even even in situations where there hasn't been a dramatic change in income, even sometimes just small changes to the interest rates like we've seen lately have done that. 
And so we, we'll sit down, and probably very similar to what you do, Blair, is we, we look at their cash flow. That's where I start with everything. Is I, mm-hmm. I want to see how much is coming in and how much is going out. Yeah. And most people that I see, they're upside down on that cash flow. Mm-hmm. So then we have to walk through the, the various options that, uh, that allow that cash flow to at least break even and hopefully have some positive edge to it. And so bankruptcies are, are one option. Uh, I find the vast majority of people prefer to avoid a bankruptcy. The number one way that I see that being done is through a consumer proposal, which allows them to propose a, a settlement to pay a portion of the debt over time. Mm-hmm. And it works very well for people. It really brings the debt down to a level that's manageable within the budget. Uh, and most people prefer that to many of the other alternatives. And what, what's a reasonable ballpark on, on a proposal for the clients you see in Alberta? How much of the debt are they typically offering to pay back? We're often somewhere around a third of the debt. I mean, so it's very really, consistent, yeah. Yeah, it really depends on the types of assets they have. It depends on their level of income. But, but I'm sure we're pretty similar to what you guys see out there. I would think the diff- one of the differences between uh, what happens in the Lower Mainland and what happens in, in Edmonton, for example, my hometown, by the way, Bart, Ooh, I just wanted oh, to throw okay. that in, Bart, um, is the, the volume or the, um, or the amount of, of debt that's involved I- in, the, in the folks coming through your door. I mean, we look at, at Vancouver and the Lower Mainland and our real estate prices are just insane and the amount of money that people have and, and put into their homes or, or borrow in order to purchase. That's got to be different than what the folks in, in Edmonton and Environs are, are experiencing. I would expect so. It would be interesting to, to compare the statistics on that, but I've never done so. I mean, the cost of a house here is, is a fraction of what it is in the lower mainland. Sure. And so people just aren't strapped that way. But I think what happens oftentimes when you're a resource-based economy like us, um, when there's large amounts of money available, and, and for a long time, you know, somebody could come out of high school and make six figures very easily just by working up in Fort McMurray. It's really good point, Bart. That's a really good point. Well, and, and that just gives them early access in their young years to, mm-hmm. to a lot of available credit. So their unsecured credit, we find, is often quite high in a setting like that, even if they don't have the, the same stresses for the cost of living that might be there. Right. And of course, anybody who was working at Fort Mac often couldn't afford to live in Fort Mac because the cost was so great. And so I know so many folks who would go back and forth between uh, Edmonton, even Kelowna and the Okanagan, the oil companies were running jets on a daily basis, bringing folks to and from their their jobs. Almost a, a surreal experience. Yeah, it's a different world and we don't see very much of that anymore. Those, those costs of living in Fort McMurray have, have largely corrected themselves, and, yeah. and we'll see where things go from there. Bart, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Bart is a licensed insolvency trustee with Goth & Company out of Edmonton, Alberta. If any of this information resonates with you or situations you've heard about feel like you want to find out a little bit more, uh, Bart is very accessible at, at uh, gothandcompany.com. If you'd like to stay in British Columbia, if that makes sense for you, uh, Sands & Associates. It's very easy to get a hold of. They've got a 1-800 number. It's 661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.